0: Zechariah 3, a passage that deals with satanic resistance to ministry. Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the righteous garments of the Lord Jesus Christ, which are our security, our protection. The only way in which we could approach boldly before your throne of grace and we come in the name of Jesus Christ as we continue to worship by uh, responding to Your Word. And I pray that as I preach, that You would give me a faithfulness of preaching and that the Word would be quickened to our hearts and it would do the good work that You intend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. may be seated. (coughs) Last week I quoted Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones As saying, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Now, how many of you can relate to that statement? I know I certainly can. Um, How many of you have desired to have a a deeper prayer walk, but you still are struggling? And uh, despite the good times that you had, you still desire that your prayer life would be better. Does that amount to most of you? You You have struggles. Uh, One author said that prayer is like breathing. It must be done, even if it can't be done well. (laughs) And I think that that is true. But there is a certain degree of mystery when this occurs in the Christian life, because if prayer is like breathing, you would think it would be a whole lot easier to uh, engage in prayer than we, we many times find it to be. Uh, even after the Spirit has drawn our hearts out into sweetness of fellowship and we've experienced His power in prayer and we've come away from a time of prayer saying, wow, I could have just had that go on forever. The next time you come to prayer, your flesh is still resisting going into that time of prayer. I think many people have experienced this. And for years, that used to trouble me. In fact, I I, I wondered, what is wrong with me? Am I the only one who is experiencing this? Uh, I even questioned if I was regenerate The fact that my heart so frequently resisted prayer. And that's actually not a bad question to ask. Is my heart unregenerate? We'll get to that a little bit later on. But I think I had an idealized view of prayer. And part of the problem was I had read quite a few books on prayer. But those authors never told me about their struggles. (laughs) They never told me about their failures. They only told me about the glorious experiences That they went through, but as I read more deeply in the whole area of of spiritual prayer, I discovered that saints all down through history have had exactly the same uh, struggles. And when I began to understand this was a common problem and why it was that they struggled with prayer and how it was they got over these struggles for prayer, I was really encouraged. And so I want to begin just by encouraging you this is not just Phil Kaiser who is a nutcase and has difficulty with this, it's not just Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great theologian Alexander White said, There is nothing that we are so bad at all our days as prayer. Now, that may be an exaggeration. I, I think it is a little bit of an exaggeration, but we certainly feel like that sometimes. And yet he recognized that prayer is an absolute indispensable part of the Christian life. And he experienced many seasons of wonderful joy in prayer and um, power in prayer. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, said this, I find in my own case an unaccountable backwardness to pray. I can read. I can write. I can converse with a ready will. But secret prayer? is far more spiritual than any of these. And the more spiritual a duty is, the more my carnal heart is apt to stray away from it. And I can definitely identify with Newton in that statement because my restless spirit wants to get out there and start doing work and forgetting the fact that the real work is on our knees. And so if you feel like you're the worst of sinners when it comes to your prayer life, well, that's John Newton's testimony. Now, the Puritan writer Thomas Shepard said, There are times in my life when I would rather die than pray. In an earlier century, Richard Hooker said this, When we pray, how are our affections many times distracted? How little reverence do we show to the grand majesty of that God unto whom we speak? How little remorse of our own miseries? How little taste of that sweet influence of His tender mercy do we feel? Are we not as unwilling many times to begin and as glad to make an end as if God in saying, call upon me, had set us a very burdensome task? In modern English, he was saying, as important as prayer is, as meaningful as it is to the Christian, why in the world would we have such a difficulty in engaging in it at times? It's just something that strangely pulls us away from prayer. And I tell you what, I can really appreciate the honesty of those saints because it ministered uh, to my spirit. One of the reasons that the Bible characters are so helpful for us is we see them as they really were. Not some idealized biography, but we see their weaknesses and we see how God took them through their weaknesses. We can identify with that. Many of these writers have given the same testimony that uh, I give, that when we actually get into prayer, we find our hearts caught up to God. We find freshness and power. At times to be sweet, but then the next time we get there, even though we know that when we get into prayer, it's going to be good, we still find the same resistance. And there's some really good reasons why it is tough. If you can understand those reasons, I think it'll help you to have more fervency in prayer. It'll help you to dig right into into the prayer, despite the fact that you don't feel like it. And uh, we're going to look at those. But before I give you some of the reasons for why true believers do find prayer to be difficult, I thought it would be good to point out that prayerlessness is also a sign of unregeneracy. In fact, it's one of the most characteristic signs of the unregenerate person that we have really fooled ourselves. We're just terrors among the wheat. And one of the indications that we really don't have the life of God within us is that we're not breathing. <clears throat> I said earlier that prayer is like breathing, even when it's difficult, it must be done or there is no life whatsoever. And I came to realize that there was a big difference between the difficulty I had in prayer before I was saved and the difficulty I had in prayer after I believe that I was regenerated after I was saved or regenerated. I really I wanted to pray more, even though I had the difficulties with it. Um, it grieved me that I did not pray as I ought. I also found that there were more times, well, there weren't really many, any at all before that, but times of sweetness, times of victory in my prayer life. And the Puritans found the same. And so I think it's just worthwhile for covenant members to every once in a while uh, examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith. The Bible says that lack of seeking God One of the distinguishing marks of an unbeliever, Romans 3.11, says there is none who seeks after God. Now, they do pray. The Bible says that they pray, but it's not what the Bible calls praying in the spirit or spiritual praying. Uh, They're not truly seeking after God because this is an absolute statement. There is none who seeks after God. None. And yet, seeking after God is the heart of prayer. Isaiah 31 Verse 1 says, they go down to Egypt for help, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. 2 Timothy 3.2 describes them as unthankful. Uh, hypocrites are characterized by hearts, Christ said, that are far from God. Far from God. Of course, my mind's pretty quick, so I'm trying to uh, justify myself. And I respond within my brain, well, I do pray sometimes. Is that not an indicator that uh, there is life? Uh, within me, but we saw last week there is quite a difference between the prayers of the righteous and the prayers of the unrighteous. And I look at my prayers before regeneration; I see they were man-centered. They really were not the sovereign God drawing my heart out in submission to uh, to Him. Now uh, there was weeping sometimes. I didn't want to go to hell, uh, but there was not really a submission to His sovereignty. <clears throat> so I prayed, but it was a different kind of prayer. Christ said, pagans do pray. And he said, don't pray like the pagans do in Matthew chapter 5. He said, their prayers are no evidence whatsoever that they have sonship. So when I say that prayerlessness is an evidence of an unborn heart, I'm talking about a certain kind of prayer, what Ephesians and what the book of Jude calls praying in the spirit. Let's just look at the pagan prayers. Uh, Some of them have a view of prayer that we likened last week to magic. Uh, They love it. If they pray in a certain way, a certain number of prayers, then they've got power. And maybe they give power to the gods, but they can manipulate the situation that they are in. There is a pastor friend of mine down in Kansas City who told me this past weekend, he's recently met a monk from an Eastern religion who prays 18 hours a day. That's just remarkable. That's all he does. He prays and sleeps. Those two things. And yet, uh, total pagan. He is uh, unregenerate. Um, There were uh, some Easterners in uh, in, uh, Tibet and China and other places who got tired of having to pray all the time, so they invented prayer wheels. They would tie the prayers onto the wheel, and every time it spun around, a prayer would offer up. And so that just saved them boatloads of time. They could be thinking of other things while they're praying because just for hours on end, they would spin that wheel and they could be doing two things at the same time. And then they invented the electric prayer wheel. Wow, that's a real efficient prayer system. And then the photocopier came along and they were able to photocopy prayers and send them down the river and the other kinds of things that they do. And then came the computer. And so I think you get the point, but is that really any different than Roman Catholics when they say a certain number of Hail Marys, certain number of Our Fathers, and because they've gone through the ritual, they know God now has to answer their prayers. But you know what? We pointed out last week, we can engage in a magical view of prayer as well. And Christ says it's no indication of sonship. Now, of course, I was like a Pharisee comforting myself that I'm not like these fellows over here who have a magical view of prayer. I did not, but I still doubted whether or not I had evidence of God's life within me. And there are people who go through questionings like this. If prayer is a sign of life, surely I ought to be given much more to it. That's the thing I was struggling with. I reminded myself I did pray more than other Christians did. But it's small comfort because when you look at the statistics, the average Christian still only prays five minutes a day. Now I was really encouraged. 2005 statistics show that pastors, uh, there's a survey of close to a thousand pastors, that that's hugely increased from 18 minutes a day to 39 minutes a day. Uh, But what troubled me was that so much of my prayer life was in public with one other person or where people would notice or where it was expected of me to pray. And there was not any of the urgency for prayer in the secret place with God. And Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're praying like that, there's no evidence of sonship. In fact, one of the things that he gave as evidences that we are sons of God and not like the hypocrites. Is if we do charity in private where nobody knows about it. When we do fasting in private, nobody knows about it. When we pray in private. Now, he's not saying you can't do charity in public and you can't do public prayers. Obviously, there's public prayers, but he says if that's the only things that you are doing, he says you better cry out to God for new life because the the heart that is regenerate has this impulse to pray to God whether other people are noticing it or not. Okay, so that's the... That's the point. Are we really living, breathing, spiritual sons of God or do we have a counterfeit religion? Now, by this time, you might be questioning whether this is even a healthy line of reasoning to be going down. Uh, Surely, this is just morbid introspection. And I wasn't even going to talk about this point. I added the point to the outline uh, late last night because when I was driving home from Kansas City yesterday, I was really convicted that we don't do enough self-examination Uh, to see whether we are really in the faith. There are people who can grow up their entire lives. They've been in an atmosphere of Christianity from the time that they were little children, and they think that they are Christians, but their hearts have never been held captive to the Lord. They're not regenerate. And one of the things that the Lord wants us to do, and I think I would be faithless as a pastor if I did not challenge you once in a while to be examining your faith. Paul said... Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Now, that commandment presumes we can be fooled. Some of those people profess to be in the faith, but maybe were tares among the wheat. So he's saying, examine yourselves. He goes on, he says, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. And so all we're doing is this. We've already admitted most of us have difficulty with prayer. I mean, you raised your hands, at least a lot of you did. Maybe you're wishing you hadn't. Um, And some of you who didn't raise your hands were maybe lying (laughs) or maybe you're mature because there is a maturity in this whole uh, this whole prayer issue. Only the Lord knows that. But most of us have difficulty with prayer. And so here's the question. What is the difference between the difficulty a true believer has with prayer and the difficulty that a terror, a hypocrite, a counterfeit Christian has with prayer? I mean, both can give the appearance of seeking God, but only the elect wishes for more. Both have times when they feel distant from God, but only the elect cries out like David did. Remember in Psalm 42, we were singing that 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 psalm, and he cries out, Lord, my soul thirsts for you. I feel dry and I hate being dry, Lord. I don't want to be in this kind of a situation any longer. Please draw near to me. I'm drawing near to you. That's the cry of the Alex heart. Whereas the other person, he feels different, distant, but he's comfortable with that distance. It's not something that really troubles him. And so it is a sign when we have that kind of dryness, but we're crying out to God that we have some life. Maybe we have spiritual emphysema, but praise God, we are breathing. OK, there is this desire. And I like the way that John Piper uh, words this. Uh, he says that we ought to delight in God. That's the sign of God's life more abundant dwelling within us, that we have a holy delight in him. But he says, you know what? If you don't delight in God, there's still evidence that you have the grace of God within you. If you long to delight in God, you wish you hungered for God. And he says, well, even if you don't long to delight in God, there's some evidence that you have God's grace within you if you are repenting of the fact that you don't even long to thirst and hunger after God. But is there that recognition and that submission of ourselves, Lord, I don't even have the long, Please give that to me because this is my heart's desire. I'm a weak believer, but Father, give me life and cause me to grow in you. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's <coughs> spend the rest of the <coughs> sermon dealing with the difficulty that saints have. We do need to evaluate ourselves. If we have no spiritual breath whatsoever, then we have to call out to God and say, Lord, I doubt that I'm even regenerate. And perhaps the Spirit of God hovering over the congregation here will call you to new life and use these very scriptures, you know, to give you that spiritual breath. But the bulk of the sermon, I want to deal with the difficulty that saints have. And the first reason is what we read from in Zechariah chapter 3 is that Satan and his demons are doing absolutely everything they can do to keep you from praying. In that, uh, <clears throat> in that first verse there, it uh, speaks of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now, it's very clear, Joshua the high priest was a man of God, he was a true servant of the Lord, And his primary task as a priest was to represent people to the Lord and to pray for those people. And so Satan is standing at at the high priest's hand, doing everything he can to oppose his work, to oppose his prayers, to oppose his ministry of offering sacrifices and turning the eyes of people to uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks a great deal about the satanic resistance and we need to be aware of it. I think the Puritans were much, much more aware of spiritual warfare than we modern Reform people. And I've many times I was discussing down in Kansas City. Why is it we reform people hardly ever talk about spiritual warfare? And I think it's because of some of the rationalism that's developed in the Reform camp since B.B. Warfield. I really think that's part of the reason. But the Puritans spoke about it a great deal. The Puritan writer Richard Sibbs wrote, when we go to God by prayer, the devil knows we go to fetch strength against him, and therefore he opposes us all he can. When I first came to Omaha, I I came under incredible demonic attack for the first full year that I was there. And it manifested in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways was in in my hindrance to prayer. And I didn't recognize it at first because I was... You know, a typical Reformed guy wasn't thinking about spiritual warfare. But I, I would go to prayer, and it was all I could do to even read a prayer. It's like my mind was foggy. I was dull. I, my mind would wander. I just had the hardest time thinking in prayer. Well, there was somebody who happened to give me a book by Mark Buback. He's not Reformed, but he had some great stuff on spiritual warfare. As I was going through the book, there were some prayers, spiritual warfare prayers that he had written out. And I just started praying one of those prayers out loud and I just felt the oppression lift and I was able to pray spontaneously and freely from my own heart after that. Now, I'm a little bit dense. It took me three times that this happened before I recognized, you know what, there is demonic oppression that's going on here. And then I began studying on spiritual warfare and I began to recognize Satan's hand in some of the things that were happening. And as I began to successfully resist him, that opposition cleared out of my life. I was able to much more easily enter into prayer. So we need to recognize Satan tries to oppose us in our prayer life. And on the back table in the foyer, there's a A little booklet, I think, there's a booklet on spiritual warfare prayers. Some of them were Mark Bubeck's that I had used. Some of them are ones that I've written myself. But I encourage you to pick one of those up. Now, don't think it's just Satan. Our flesh is just as capable of hindering our prayer life. Remember we had said earlier, this is one of the characteristics of unbelievers, is that they don't really seek after God. Their hearts are not disposed to go to Him. Oh, formally, sure, in the worship service, something like that. Yeah, they can, uh, they can think that they are praying, but when God converts us, we don't instantly become totally sanctified. Okay, we still have some of those old habits and some of the flesh that is weighing us down. Now, God has infused into us life. He has infused into us a new ability to breathe this spiritual breath, but the flesh still tends to drag us down. Now, let me tell you something. If you are not crucifying the flesh, you're going to end up with less and less power. The flesh does not stay neutral. You're either putting it to death, okay, or it is growing. First Peter 3 speaks of sinful relations between husband and wife, uh, where maybe a husband has poorly treated his wife. And he said, man, you better get that right, or your prayers will be hindered. Okay, Our sin hindering our prayers. The more we embrace sin, the less we desire prayer. And of course, God doesn't answer our prayers. David said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 66, verse 18. And probably the chief sin that hinders our prayer life is spiritual pride. James 4, 6 says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now that is a staggering verse when you think about it if God Himself resists our prayers, you know that our prayers are going to bounce off the ceiling. They're not going to have any more impact than a spitwad would have against a brick wall. So you've got Satan opposing our prayers, our flesh opposes our prayers, and God opposes our prayers? Man, if all three are ganged up against us, there's no way our prayers are going to do a thing, right? And so we've got to take this seriously. Uh, There can be many reasons for why our prayer life is, is hurting, and, pr- and pride is one of the big ones. Pride left unchecked removes any motivation to pray. Pride makes us dependent on ourselves, and every prayerless person, by definition, is a proud person. You may not think of yourself as proud, but if you are not praying regularly, you are proud, by definition. Why? Because God says in His Word, That prayerlessness is an indicator we think we can do it on our own, right? We don't need God's help. That's why we're not asking him for his help. We're we're just quite content to move on on our own. So even if you think you're not proud, you are intensely proud if you are a prayerless person. And that pride is going to continue to hinder your prayer life until you crucify that pride, until you put it to death. Pride is the great enemy of prayer. And so if you are not abusing your pride, your pride is going to abuse your prayer life. Guaranteed. If you're not abusing your pride, it will abuse your prayer life. The two are opposed to one another. Now, in other sermons... I've given a number of ways for crucifying pride, but spiritual prayer is another one. It's a tremendous tool for crucifying our pride. Anytime there is crucifixion going on inside of us, we're uncomfortable, right? So you're not going to be doing something you feel like doing initially. You're going to be doing something that's the exact opposite of what you feel like doing because you're going to feel, I don't like this crucifixion is a difficult thing. So initially, it is harder to pray, but as you persevere in spiritual prayer, make it a discipline. Ask God for His strength. What you're going to find is your pride, that terrible monster that you have pinned up there on the cross. Initially, is shouting like crazy, and because he's making such a fuss, you take him down off the cross. But if you leave him up there, he's going to get weaker and weaker, and eventually... He's going to be hardly making any whimpers and your prayer life is just going to soar. Your prayer life's going to be strong. Pride will be weak. But when pride gets strong, your prayer life will get weak. The two are constantly in opposition to one another. E.M. Bounds said, praying is humbling work. It abases the intellect and pride, crucifies vainglory and signs our spiritual bankruptcy. And all of these are hard for flesh and blood to bear. No wonder, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the ultimate test of our Christian life is the amount of time that we give to prayer. And so have you tested your Christian life by your prayers? I think all of us, when we test our Christian life by spiritual prayer, realize, man, Lord, I've got such a long ways to grow. And the saints of old have said, you know, that this has cast them on their knees before God and said, Lord, Do not let me fall. You said in Jude, you are able to keep me from stumbling. I want to be kept from stumbling. And I know that unless I abide as a branch abides in the vine, I'm not going to bear any fruit. So please, Lord, give to me. Pour out upon me a spirit of prayer and supplication. Do we simply depend on flesh and blood or do we depend upon God to do all things? Do you know why we must pray in Christ's name? It's not just a little magic formula that you tack at the end of a prayer. And it's not just the code words so that people know when to open their eyes. You know, okay, well, he's done, finished praying because he said in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, no, that's not the reason that we do it. And I'm repeating myself on this, but I think this does bear repeating. Our whole life must be characterized by living through His name. Acts 3.16, Peter said, In His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong. Christ's name brought healing. The phrase through faith in his name is an explanatory phrase. So without it, it would read, and his name has made this man strong. What was the means by which his name made it strong? It's faith in his name. So his name made him strong. The means by which we entered into that is faith in his name had made that man strong. And a brief study of Christ's name shows that everything, absolutely everything, has to flow through the name of Christ. And this is so contrary to pride. So contrary. Again, I've taught on this before, but uh, I I, I just felt strongly yesterday. I needed to repeat this. Acts 3.6, Peter says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. So there's healing in His name. We're commanded to pray in His name. John 16.26 To gather in His name. Matthew 18.20 Cast out demons in His name. Mark 9.38 Work miracles in His name. Mark 9.39 preach remission of sins in his name Luke 24:47 we're justified in his name 1 Corinthians 6:11 we plead with people in his name 1 Corinthians 1:10 1, we give a cup of cold water in his name Matthew 10:42 we trust in his name Matthew 12:21 we receive a little child in his name Matthew 18:5 and on and on Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, that is repeated so many times. I'm going to just spend a little bit of time giving a story I've given to you already. But some of you uh, maybe have forgetful memories. And I think it bears uh, repeating. Acts 4.7 gives the meaning of what... what it it means to to speak or pray or do anything in his name. Acts 4-7, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? To do something in someone's name is to do something by someone's authorization. So when the police come and say, I arrest you in the name of the law, they're coming, hopefully, (laughs) with the warrant of the law behind them. That's maybe not always the case, but when somebody comes and he says, I come in the name of the king, that means he has been sent by the king. He's authorized by the king. He comes with the power of the king backing him up. When you sign a credit card with your name, you are authorizing a deduction to be made from your bank account, right? So that's the the general meaning of that. And I'm going to give this parable to help you to understand this. Let's say that you're a, a criminal, which you all once were. <clears throat> spiritually, and that you have committed many, many uh, violations of God's holy law. Uh, some of them were very intentional violations. You knew right well that you were doing it. Some of them were unintentional. But eventually the law caught up with you, and you were cast into prison. And in prison, you're looking around at all of the other people, and you're just shocked because these people are blaming the system God's laws were too tough they're cursing God because you know it's his fault if he hadn't made all of these ridiculous laws we wouldn't be in this mess some people are blaming their mother for the way that they were brought up others are blaming uh, other things and you're looking at them and you're thinking this is so strange you got your head in your hands because you know you are deserving of hell God's spirit has convinced you of this already. You are deserving of hell because of all of the things that you have done. But into the cell walks Jesus and Jesus walks up to you, uh, introduces himself and calls you by name. You're surprised that he knows you, but he not only knows you, he starts telling you about all of the sins that you've ever committed. And not only the ones you know about, but the ones you don't know about. And uh, he says that you're in serious, deep trouble. Well, you already know you're in trouble. And he says, I'm a lawyer who can take care of all of the problems that you're facing. In fact, every single person that I have represented, I have gotten off the hook. And you're thinking, oh boy, this would be great if, uh, if he would represent me. But you tell him, look, I can't, I can't afford a lawyer. And he says, don't worry about it. Uh, even my lawyer's fees, I'm just going to put on my account. Uh, so uh, you're thrilled. You say, yes, I would like you to be my lawyer. But he tells you, look... If I'm going to be your lawyer, you have to plead guilty to the court for every single sin that I have pointed out to you right now. And you're kind of shocked and you say, well, man, I can't possibly do that. If I plead guilty to all of these crimes, they're going to throw the books at me. I'm going to be in jail and then eventually be executed. There is no way I would be able to get off the hook. And he says, fine, I'm not going to be your lawyer then. If you do not plead guilty to every one of these crimes, I will not be your lawyer. And you think, well, boy, that's going to be hard. What will my mother think when she finds out I did that? What will my neighbors think when they realize, you know, that I've been this dirty, rotten sinner? But you decide, man, I I desperately need this lawyer. And so you say, fine, I will plead guilty to all of these. And I do plead guilty before you because you seem to know more about my sins than I do. And so you plead guilty to all of these sins. And Jesus tells you, okay, here's the plan. I plan to go into the courtroom Myself wearing your name, the court will declare you guilty and then I will go and be crucified as specified by the law, bearing the, the wrath of Almighty God against every sin that you have committed as well as the sins for my other clients. And then when you go into the courtroom and they accuse you of all of these crimes, you can plead guilty and just say, Yes, but I've already been punished for that. Just open up the books and you'll see I've been punished for that. And they open up the books and sure enough, it says Phil Kaiser was crucified, bore God's wrath fully in 30 AD. And so you'll be off the books because there can be no double jeopardy. You can't be punished for the same crimes twice. And because I'm your substitute, uh, you'll be off scot-free. And you think, wow, this is an incredibly thrilling uh, plan. And so, uh, you're willing to do that. And then Jesus gives one more shocker. He says there's one more catch. From that time on, as far as the law is concerned, you no longer exist. You died, right? That's what the law says. You died. You no longer exist. Since you died with me in 30 AD, you no longer have a separate ID apart from me. Dead people can't purchase things. Why? They don't exist. As far as the law is concerned, they cannot enter into contracts. They can't get married. They can't start a business. They can't do anything else. You'll have to do everything in my name. The moment you try to do anything in your own strength and in your own name, your spiritual checks are going to start to bounce. Your spiritual credit card won't process. You're going to be frustrated. It cannot be done. In fact, the spiritual police are going to come after you because if your name pops up, you're a crook. They're going to come after you. And you're going to come under bondage of the law. Your only safety is being dead as far as the law is concerned. And so from here on in, you are both legally and experientially totally dependent upon me, Jesus, for money, for love, for strength, for everything. If you don't do everything in my name, automatically you are doing it in your own name. You are doing it in your own strength and you're going to come under bondage. You're going to come under the curse of the law. Now, I've already provided everything you need. I've provided a spiritual bank account in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1, verse 2. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you have any need? Just get out your checkbook and write in Jesus' name, and you're going to get everything that you need. It's that easy. Sign the check in Jesus' name. If you sign it in your own name, you're not going to get anything. You're not going to get anything from your bank account. And so this is where pride comes in as such a grievous sin and such an opposition to our prayers. Hopefully, you're getting a little bit of a significance for why Christ's name is repeated so often. Without it, you can do nothing. To come in his name is to come in his power, his authorization, his authority, and it takes faith to do that. But what's encouraging about that passage I read in Acts 3 is that Jesus not only provided the healing and the forgiveness amazingly, he provided even the faith and the repentance. Acts 3.16 says, And his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. He speaks of the faith which comes through him. That's through Jesus. And so faith is not something that we can provide. Paul says, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Not even faith dwells in this flesh. God must give it as a gift or we could not have it. Anything we provide is a stench in God's sight. We cannot even pay for the attorney's fees. We don't even have the dime to put it. Dime is 75 cents now to put into the pay phone to call the attorney. Everything's provided. He's the one who called us. We love Him because He first loved us. Is that not the gospel of Jesus Christ? And yet, how many times do we go out as Christians and we believe the gospel when it comes first to receiving Christ for our salvation, for our justification, and then we go on and we're not living the gospel. We're not living as if prayer matters. Which means what? We've ditched the gospel and we're living in our own flesh. We're living in our own strength. Can you see why prayerlessness is so heinous to God? It is pride. It is spiritual pride. And I'm preaching this as much to myself as I am preaching it to you. Prayerlessness must be a sin that is repented of. Acts 18.27 speaks of those who believed through grace. It takes grace to bring a person to the place of faith. Well, that has profound ramifications for prayer. This is why Jane says, you have not. Because you ask not you've been trying to sign these checks, not in Jesus name, not through prayer, not through dependency upon him, not through seeking him, but through seeking Egypt. He said, that's what the unbelievers do. They seek Egypt instead of seeking the Lord. He says that should not be characteristic of the Christian life. This is why Ephesians six, verse 18 says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit Wow, there is an even added feature that God has to provide. We can't pray this way unless God gives us the spirit to pray this way. Romans 8 says we don't even know how to pray as we ought. And so God says, "Okay, fine, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you the spirit to intercede from within you. I'm going to give you the son to intercede at my right hand. And I am now telling you, petition me. I want to be petitioned. Prayerlessness is pride because it is a denial. It is a denial that everything must come through Christ. Okay, another obstacle to prayer is impatience. Why does God make us wait? We've got to convince ourselves of the truth of Galatians 6, verse 9, which says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Too many Christians are part of the instant generation, and if they don't get the answer to their prayer in one week, then they just give up praying. They're not persevering in prayer. Well, no farmer would do that, and praying is planting spiritual seeds, okay? Praying is planting seeds. Now, does every seed that a farmer plants get uh, sprouted and grow up and give a, a harvest? It doesn't, does it? And so not every prayer that we pray is necessarily going to be answered. Well, it will be answered. It'll be answered with one of four words. Here's the words that God answers us with. First word is no. Second word is slow. The third word is grow. And the fourth word is go. And let me explain those. His no answers may be disappointing at the time, (laughs) But when we look back on it, we're going to be so thankful that God said no instead of giving us what we desire. It's sort of like the little child, you know, that's that's trying to get his hand up on the stove. And you say to the child, no. And the child's so disappointed, you know, it it seems like it would be so much fun to stick your hand up there and see what that glowing stove is uh, all about. And yet we say no because we love the child and we want the best for him. And so as we mature over time, we look back and we say, oh, man, I can't believe I prayed that prayer. And I'm so thankful that God said no to me. <clears throat> Lewis Carroll said, I have had prayers answered most strangely so sometimes, but I think our heavenly father's loving kindness has been even more evident in what he has refused me. Let me just give you one example. Think of the well that Joseph was thrown into. Remember when his brothers were trying to figure out what do we do with him? thrown into that well. I can just imagine the people who dug that well praying to God, Okay, Lord, please prosper the digging of this well. And God said no. Now, if he had answered yes, Joseph would have been drowned, right? So God's no's always have a reason. There's always a reason for them. But God's answer of slow can sometimes also be frustrating. God has His perfect timing and we can trust Him. His answer of grow is similar to slow and it's basically this. I'm going to answer your prayer, but if I answered it right now, you wouldn't be able to handle it. I'm going to wait till you mature, and when you are mature enough, I will give you the answer to your prayer. And that really is a blessing. So the faster we mature in Christ, the more quickly our prayer may be answered. And then his answer of go is basically a rebuke. God rebuked Moses for praying in Exodus 14, verse 15. He says, What are you praying for? Get up and go, is what he tells Moses. He says, Now is not the time for prayer. Now is the time for action. I've already told you what you need to do. Don't pray. Go. And there are times where we are just irresponsible. We're lazy, and we want God to do something for us without our putting any effort into it whatsoever. It's sort of like the kid, you know, who's too lazy to study for the exam, and right before the exam, he's praying, Oh, Lord, please give me the answers to this exam. God says, go. You got your responsibilities. When you engage in your responsibilities, I will come and I will bless you with that. And so don't be praying for your neighbor's salvation, but never go talk to your neighbor. God says, go. When you go, then pray in the going and I will accompany your going and you're doing your responsibility with with uh, with blessing." And so when you're impatient, keep those four words in mind. No, slow, grow and go. Let's quickly uh, look at five more excuses for prayerlessness. The first excuse is that we're too busy. Let me tell you, this is the most frequent excuse that my flesh offers up. I'm too busy to pray. (laughs) I'm not kidding. How many times I've told myself, self, shut up. You're not too busy to pray. My, my flesh keeps thinking I'm too busy to pray. It's an irrational excuse and it's a lame excuse because when you think of it, it's a matter of priorities. People who are too busy to pray somehow always find the time to be able to get dressed in the morning, to brush their teeth, to eat breakfast, uh, you know, to do all of their hygiene, to do a whole host of other things and you could say is prayer really less important than you know brushing your hair and and uh, some of the other things that you do it really is a matter of priorities and so luther once said something to the effect i've got so much stuff to do today to be efficient i need to get up and pray for 3 hours <laughs> and that's what john piper says our prayers make us so efficient Why? Because we're doing them in God's power. We're doing the exercises. Another excuse is that we have trouble concentrating on our prayers. Now, this is, I'll look at antidotes for some of the other general antidotes, but uh, this excuse, trouble concentrating, uh, let me address quickly some antidotes for this because my mind does tend to wander as well, and I've learned a few things that have helped me. First, I find it helpful to pray out loud. This has become a tool that helps, that forces me with my voice to concentrate on the task that is at hand. So, I just pray out loud. Secondly, I'll walk back and forth in my study when I am praying. And you might wonder, what difference does walking back and forth have? Well, it keeps me from falling asleep. (laughs) And for me, it may not work for you, but for me, again, it keeps me focused on what I am supposed to be praying. Third, I try to make my time of intercession to be when my mind is the least tired. Fourth, I keep a pad of paper handy. I've always got a pad of paper in my pocket. And the reason for that is because my mind is always thinking ahead. What are some of the things that need to be done? And I think, oh man, I, if I don't get going on that, I'm going to forget it. And it, it tends to be true. Kathy will tell you that. I'm a person who, you know, comes into my mind that just leaves right away. I'm I'm scatterbrained, and so I've got to have it written down. So if I have a pad of paper, as soon as the thought comes to my mind, I can interrupt my prayer, quickly write it down, and forget about it. It's not tormenting me in the back of my mind. So that's helped me. Fifth, I try to remember the greatness of the God that I am talking to. And I think I got this from Alexander White, who uh, he was much before Google Earth, but uh, he said, just imagine yourself uh, looking at the universe and all of the galaxies and that this is the God whom you speak to. And I just imagine coming out from my house, you know, Google Earth and this the big planet and then going out beyond that, you know, into the, 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 the galaxies beyond. And I'm thinking the God I am addressing is the God who spoke all this into existence. And He's allowing me to pray to Him and to petition Him. And so it gives me a perspective on how how awesome the privilege of prayer really is. Six, try to keep a prayer list so that you can go down the page when your mind has forgotten what you're praying about. And I'll say more about that in a moment. I'm just going to skip over the next three excuses because I think these uh, antidotes that I gave, I think, deal with them as well. Fatigue, interruptions, boredom. Well, fatigue. You know, if if you're that exhausted, just go to bed and when you wake up in the morning, have your prayer. Okay. But uh, there are times when God just puts us to sleep. Isn't that what he did with Elijah? Don't feel guilty. You know, some people feel guilty if they're sleeping more than four or five hours a night. I went through that stage of my life and it'll kill you. Uh, God says it is not good to stay up late and to rise up early to eat the bread of sorrows for so he giveth his beloved sleep. But Enough on that. Those those other antidotes will take care of the other ones. Let me end with some general antidotes to our struggles for prayer. First antidote is to recognize God's grace for prayer usually comes as we pray. This is the way God always works. Well, almost always works. Not always, but when he asked the man who had the withered hand stretch forth your hand, the man could have said, well, that's the whole problem. You've got to heal it first. Then I'll stretch it forth, right? He could have said that and his hand would never have been healed. But it's as he wills to do that which he thinks he can't do that God's grace comes through. The Jordan River doesn't part so that they can march through. They did that with the Red Sea. In fact, that's what God told Moses. The, the glory cloud was out over the Red Sea. And any time the glory cloud moved, they were supposed to follow. And so God had already told him where he was supposed to go. And he says, why are you praying? Go forward. Well, where were they? They were right at the sea. The only way they could go forward was into the sea. And so God condescended to their weakness. And he says, "Okay, fine. I'm going to put my glory cloud behind you and separate you from the Egyptians. And I'll open it up first. Then you can cross. But next time, you're going to touch the water before it parts. And that's what happened. Their feet touched the water and the Jordan parted. And that's the way it is many times and almost always with my prayers. There's times where God's just burdened me to pray. I couldn't not pray. It just he he, he gives me such an urge. Sometimes I think of it as prevailing. Some people say it feels like giving birth to a baby. But most of the time, that's not the case with me. Most of the time, I don't want to pray. But it's as I tell the Lord, Lord, I don't want to pray. I know I'm an unspiritual man. But your spirit is so powerful, it can overcome my unspiritual self. And I come and I I lay claim to your cross and I'm going to begin to pray and I start praying through the things. And it's in the praying that God's spirit energizes our spirit. And enables us to pray as we ought. And so that's why I say, recognize that God's grace for prayer usually comes as we pray. W. Graham Scroggy used to say, pray when you feel like it. Pray when you don't feel like it. Pray until you do feel like it. Okay? When David cried out, I thirst for you, he was basically saying, I am dry and parched. I don't feel spiritual refreshment. I feel distant. I don't feel like praying to you, but he prays anyway, right? That's the whole point of that psalm. And it's in the praying that God's refreshment comes into our hearts. Spurgeon said, the more we pray, the more we shall want to pray. The more we pray, the more we can pray. The more we pray, the more we shall pray. He who prays little will pray less. Okay, it it always is diminishing. But he who prays much will pray more, and he who prays more will desire to pray more abundantly. Okay, so there is this dynamic that it's as you stretch out your spiritual hand and you say, "Lord, I don't feel like it. I'm so weak in my prayers, but I commit myself to pray." And you begin praying that God's grace takes over, and by faith, believe His grace will take over. You gotta approach Him through faith. But prayer is too important to make it dependent on your feelings. That's, that's the main point. Pray. Second, remind yourself that, uh, of the power that pl- flows through prayer. Now, it's not prayer that's powerful. I think that's an idolistic view. It's that God has chosen to exhibit His power in the weakness of prayer. Andrew Murray, in his book, The Ministry of Intercession, said, surely of all the gifts of the early church for which we should long, there is none more needed than the gift of prayer. When Peter was kept in prison, prayer was made without ceasing of the church. Peter was delivered. Stone walls and double chains, soldiers and keepers and the iron gate all gave way before the power of prayer from heaven. That prayer brought down the rescue. The whole power of the Roman Empire, as represented by Herod, was impotent in the presence and power of the church of the Holy Spirit yielded in prayer. And there are so many scriptures that connect this power to the the prayers of the saints. A.C. Dixon, the pastor of Moody Church, once said, When we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. And so on. Nor am I disposed to undervalue any of these things in their proper place. But when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do. And I have seen this in my ministry. I've seen ministry that is just done by the flesh. And I have seen ministry that is wrought by the spirit, whether it's in counseling. And I'm simply praying, Lord, I don't know what to say into this situation. But you have promised to your saints that if anyone lacks wisdom, you will give it. And I believe you. I'm taking you at your word. And even though I don't feel like going into the situation, I'm going in with the full knowledge. You're going to give me the wisdom I need and things will pop into my mind that I would not have otherwise thought about. As we have gone in prayer and you guys have covered me with prayer going into China. Miraculous things have happened. The Lord's opened up doors. There is a power. And pray. we need to remind ourselves of that. When I'm saying, oh, I don't want to pray, I need to say, self, don't be an idiot. Do you want power in your ministry or do you want failure in your ministry? And self says, yeah, I guess that's a good point. I need to pray, right? You need to remind yourself. Now, I've already mentioned praying out loud, and this may seem a little bit weird to you, so I, I want to develop this a little bit. But this is the way they almost always prayed in the Bible. In fact, uh, even though there is, uh, you know, a couple silent prayers that are mentioned in the Scripture... For the most part, they're prayed out loud and we don't have any record of people reading silently in their heads until Ambrose. um, uh, Augustine, you know, met Ambrose and he saw him flipping the pages and reading. He said, what are you doing? He said, I'm reading. He says, how come your lips are not moving? Augustine had never seen anything like that before. And so people were used to reading out loud. It's not something you should think as being strange. But here's the reasons I pray out loud very frequently. I mentioned it keeps your mind on track. Secondly, animated speech. And when you're praying, especially if you're resisting the flesh, you know, you can pray with animated speech. Lord, I hate the fact that my flesh is like this. Please give me your spirit. When you pray out loud like that, even though your emotions were apathetic before, now your emotions are beginning to be aligned in the service of the king instead of in the service of the evil one. There is something about saying things animated out loud that activates our emotions in the service of God. And they are motivator motivating factors. It gives us a vigor of heart. Third, if we're resisting Satan in our prayers, he can't read your thoughts. I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad he can't read my thoughts. He can put temptations into our mind, but he cannot read our thoughts. And if you want the theological discourse and why that is true, I can give it to you. But this means that he will not flee if you're resisting him in spiritual warfare, unless you are praying out loud and rebuking out loud. And so if you want him to flee from you, resist him out loud like Jesus did. And so I I found the discipline of praying out loud hugely, hugely helpful in my prayer. Praying silently has tended to put me to sleep. I've also found it very helpful to read the psalms, the hymns, prayers of others and make them my own. Many times the the psalms have given me a faith to ask as I ought. And let me tell you, there is a power in praying scripture because faith comes as everything we are asking flows from this. That's what it means to pray according to the will of God. It's not saying, oh, you've got to somehow discover God's secret will. OK, God sometimes does uh, open our eyes through guidance. But when we're praying according to God's will, we're praying according to the scripture. We're grounding it in, it, in, in the scripture and it gives us incredible confidence. I think on the book table that there is a Matthew Henry's method of prayer. If you don't own that book, buy it. That is such an incredibly marvelous book on teaching you how to ground every phrase of your prayers in the scriptures. Oh, it will elevate your faith. I just open up that book and look at some portions of prayer and I will just pray through the pages. And it has taught me to have much greater faith in my praying. I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, Keep a prayer list. Uh, That can help if you want to be motivated. Some people uh, really have found this helpful to have uh, just a loose leaf book and four columns. Date, prayer request, scripture you're claiming, And then the answer to uh, the the date uh, and the answer that was um, that the Lord gave. Because we tend to be forgetful, and here's one of the problems that discourages people from praying. They say, "You know, my prayers don't ever do any good. The Lord's never answered me." And then you can go to your prayer book and you say, "What a lie! He has given me hundreds of answers to prayer." And I guarantee you, if you take seriously last week's and this week's sermon on prayer, you start recording them, you're going to be so encouraged when you see. Wow, God answers prayers. And our tendency is to think, well, that was just coincidence. Yeah, coincidence. Coincidence. Page after page after page of coincidences. I don't think so. Uh, God is a God who answers prayer. A sixth thing that helps me to keep get back on track is to remind myself of the incredible issues that are at stake. Ephesians 6.10 warns us we're in a spiritual battle. We need to stand strong in the strength of the Lord. And so prayerlessness will lead to powerlessness. We need to be convinced of that. But likewise, we need to be convinced if we're not praying for our brothers and sisters who are on the front lines of the battlefield, we are letting them down. We're letting them down. Uh, Alan Affleck said Uriah the Hittite was in the hottest part of the battle, and his fellow soldiers withdrew from him on the command of King David. We do the same thing to our fellow soldiers when we withdraw our prayers from them. There are consequences to prayerlessness. But I like to remind myself also that without Christ I can do nothing. If you're really convinced that John fifteen five is true, without me you can do nothing, then we're going to be stirred up to prayer. Isaac Bashevis Singer once confessed, I only pray when I'm in trouble. But I'm in trouble all the time, so I pray all the time. <laughs> so he obviously had become convinced that John fifteen five was true. Without Christ, I can't do anything. Man, am I in trouble. I can't do a thing. And therefore, I need to be in prayer all the time. And then the last piece of advice I would give you is to keep at it even when you fail. And this has been the advice of hundreds of saints from the past who have blown it themselves. And they just get right up and they try again. They blow it and they get right up and try again. Don't let Satan discourage you and think, oh, you're hopeless. If you see any signs of breathing, any signs of life, then forget about his temptations. You're not a believer. If you don't see signs of life, call out to God to give you that life. But if you do, just forget Satan's you know, temptations along those lines and say, I'm going to get up and try again. And the Lord's going to strengthen me as I keep persevering. Proverbs 24:16 says, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Now, an unbeliever won't. But he says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. So get up despite the difficulty. The more times you get up, the easier it will be. And may God bless our congregation with the power of his spirit. May he pour out a spirit of prayer and supplication so that all of the churches of Omaha think of Dominion Covenant Church as being a praying church. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege of prayer. Forgive us for those times where we have neglected it. Forgive us for those times when in the pride of our hearts we think we can do much without You. And Father, we know we don't have to spend 18 hours like that pagan Buddhist monk uh, spent uh, in in, in prayers. Uh, We can just offer up uh, very quickly the petitions of our heart, our love to You, our adoration and uh, have a, just a consciousness of our dependence upon you. Help us to have an attitude of dependence and prayer upon you always. But Father, especially in those seasons of prayer and intercession that we set aside in the secret place, I pray that you would bless this, your people, and encourage their hearts as you fill them with joy at such an awesome, awesome responsibility as we have of petitioning the King of this universe. Blessed be Your name forever and ever, Father. And may our hearts constantly and forever agree with Your deservedness of blessing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.